Oftentimes, the, uh, the problem behavior uh, starts very early, and there's not uh, intervention at that early age when it can be most helpful. And then they, the students get into school and they engage in the same kinds of behaviors, but they're not at home now. So now it's a different situation and they start to encounter a lot of consequences for their behavior. The school environment for them becomes very negative. Peers, they, you know, peers reject them because other kids don't want to be involved with kids that tend to engage in more problematic behaviors, um, particularly at an early age. And they get marked very early on. Uh, so they don't have friends with good social skills. So then they begin to gravitate towards other kids with problem behavior. And when they gravitate toward other kids with problem behavior, then we see even more problem behavior because they begin to learn from one another. You know, that's how it goes with this population. That's sort of a, a package early on. Hi, this is Liz Weaver, and you are listening to the Learning Success Podcast, an information-packed podcast with the latest news, information, and tips to help you overcome a learning difficulty. For anyone suffering from a reading difficulty, writing difficulty, a math difficulty, a focus problem, dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, or ADHD, this is the place for you. The Learning Success Podcast is brought to you by LearningSuccessSystem.com. Hello, and welcome to the Learning Success Podcast. I'm Phil Weaver, and I will be your host today. Today, we have Dr. Barry McCurdy. Dr. Barry McCurdy is the Director of Training for Devereaux's APA-accredited internship in health service psychology and the founding director of the Devereaux Center for Effective Schools. He earned a PhD in school psychology from Lehigh University and has held both clinic and university-based training appointments during his career. Dr. McCurdy's primary research interest in the treatment of disruptive behavior disorders has led to several preventative initiatives in urban schools and alternative education programs, including the adaptation of multi-tiered systems of support for urban and alternative settings, school-based behavioral health for urban settings, and the development of evidence-based training for teachers of students with emotional and behavioral disorders. Dr. McCurdy is an active member of a number of professional organizations concerned with behavior analysis and positive behavior support and currently serves as vice president for the Association for Positive Behavior Support. Today we have a, a couple of interesting uh, topics we're going to go over uh, around behavior and what um, the Devereux Institute is doing to help schools out and learning in this new uh, COVID world. So welcome, Dr. McCurdy, and thank you for coming. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Phil. So and please call uh, me Barry, please. Okay, Barry, thank you. <laughs> um, so let's just start off, if you could tell us about the uh, Devereux Advanced Behavioral Health. Sure. Uh, Devereux has been around for a long time. Okay. Uh, and actually, it's so interesting because uh, I remember being a uh, high school student and I grew up not too far from uh, where their headquarters are. And I remember learning about Devereaux at that time and never thinking that I would actually be employed there. But I've been employed at Devereaux for almost 30 years. Um, and it's been a great organization to work for because they've allowed me the freedom um, to do some very creative, to some very creative things. We'll, talk, we'll probably talk about some of that today. But it's really it's the, one of the largest and most advanced behavioral health uh, non-for-profit organizations in the country. We are across uh, 13 different states. Um, and uh, we were founded in 1912 by a special 
education pioneer, Helena Devereaux. Uh, she was a teacher in the South Philadelphia Public School. That school is still in operation today. Um, and it, it was an interesting time back then because right at that time, compulsory school laws came into effect and all kids, all young children had to be in school. And so we got a variety of children coming into school with a variety of needs because we had a lot of immigrants at the time coming into the country. Uh, and we needed people who could really serve uh, that population. So Helena Devereaux uh, stepped up and really became uh, one of the first uh, public school teachers that invested herself in special education. So we have a whole network of programs that run across the country, and those programs include um, hospital settings, residential treatment settings, uh, community and school-based uh, programs, um, and others. Wow, that's that's quite a history that goes back. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so the uh, the Center for Effective Schools, that's um, can, what, what, what is that about? What's the mission there? OK, uh, so the Center for Effective Schools, the mission uh, is we, we actually like to refer to ourselves as a nonprofit research and training center. And we're really dedicated to building the capacity of schools and other programs, other institutions that serve children to actually better serve children and adolescents who might be at risk for um, severe uh, behavior problems, severe behavior disorders, uh, or we'll refer to them as emotional and behavior disorders. Um, and in order to accomplish this mission, we do a lot of training, we do a lot of consultation, we do some applied research. Um, and our consultation and training is uh, at the individual level. So we may do training with teachers, administrators, counselors, psychologists, uh, but a lot of our consultation is a systems-wide consultation. So uh, we work with entire schools or we work with entire districts uh, to, to implement uh, models that we know are effective uh, to address uh, the needs of students with and at risk for emotional and behavior disorders. Okay, so are you primarily working then at, at the, the administration level or you have touch points with parents, schools, direct counseling, is it, is, where, where is that happening? Yes, actually all of those, okay. So, okay. Uh, we do a lot of work at the uh, district level and at the, at the school level, uh, at the, uh, you know, sort of the top of the school, working with principals and, uh, and administration. Um, we do teach direct teacher training. Um, we also do parent training. Uh, and, uh, and we sometimes work directly with kids uh, as well. Okay. And, and can you tell us about your role there? At the Center for Federal Schools? So, yeah. uh, so um, I started the Center for Effective Schools in 1999. So I continue. They, they allow me to be the uh, <laughs> to continue to be the director. I have a staff of about 12 people uh, that work for me. We started with one person back in 1999. One other person in 1999. Now we have 12, uh, and they are a very talented uh, and invested group of people who uh, really are very invested in carrying out the mission of the Center for Effective Schools. I see. And, and why is it that, how did you get into this? Why, why did you okay. pursue this career? Yeah. All right. So, um, so I started my career uh, working in urban public schools. Um, and I worked for about 12 years in a large urban public school. Um, got a master's in counseling at the time. Um, and, um, 
you know, I just I loved working with the population of uh, students uh, in in the city. Um, they had a variety of needs, uh, and uh, I felt good about being able to serve those needs. Uh, I decided then to uh, go back to school and get my doctorate in school psychology, which is really what I wanted to do, um, and ended up going to Lehigh University. Lehigh University has a school psychology program that at the time, and actually still continues to be, uh, pretty different than most other school psychology programs. So rather than when you think about school psychology, often people think about uh, individuals who are going out into the school system are going to be testing students and placing students in special education, sort of the gatekeepers of special ed. Um, school psych uh, Lehigh University's school psychology program was very different than that. Um, they trained school psychologists as interventionists, okay, that was their focus. Uh, and they were at the time one of the uh, only behavioral school psychology training programs in the country. Um, so that was very interesting to me because I was going to learn a set of skills that were going to that were uh, that I was going to be able to use to consult effectively uh, with teachers, and it was teachers who really needed uh, the support and the help in working with some of the students that they were working with. Again, particularly in urban schools. Um, so I finished my PhD uh, at Lehigh and then uh, ended up actually working for Lehigh's laboratory school. I was hired at Lehigh's lab school. And the lab school was a school that um, trained special educators, trained teachers, and trained psychologists um, to address the needs of students with emotional behavior disorder. So, uh, and we had a large group of students that were that were sent there. Uh, it was an approved private, it is an approved private school, continues to be an approved private school in Pennsylvania. Uh, that's called Centennial School. Uh, we had a large number of students that were sent there from surrounding districts because they couldn't be um, educated within their districts. So we, it was a tough population. Centennial School had a great model. Uh, we had uh, consultation from the professors at Lehigh University, both in special education and school psychology. And working in that environment for eight years, you really learn a lot of skills. Um, I finished up my PhD while I was working at Centennial School and thought, all right, well, now I need to try someplace different. I need to go somewhere else. Uh, so I ended up at Devereaux working as the clinical director in one of their programs. Uh, and uh, what at the time was called the Canner Center. Uh, it's now called the Children's Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities uh, Program. And so I served there as the uh, clinical director for about three years, and then realized that if we really want to make a difference uh, with kids, not that we weren't making a difference with kids, because Deborah does a great job, um, but if we really wanted to reach more kids, we really had to get into the work of prevention. And if we're gonna get into the work of prevention, I couldn't be working in residential treatment. I had to be working in public schools because that's where the kids are. Uh, so we start. So um, I moved from my clinical director position to the research department, the Institute of Clinical and Professional Training and Research, um, on a grant. I had a grant at the time to develop a training program within Devereaux for uh, their direct care staff. But at the time, I was also uh, consulting with. Um, teachers and doing some training um, in the school district of Philadelphia. And, um, and that's really where it began. And from there, we started to, I started to bring in some grant money uh, to do more training, to develop systems, effective systems for working with kids who might be at risk 
for developing emotional behavior disorders. Um, and, uh, and then we grew from there. So that was in 1999. Um, and as I said, we've been in operation for over 20 years now, um, funding ourselves with grant dollars and, um, and contracts. Uh, and Devereaux has been very generous to us. So if we don't always, uh, if, we're, if we're not always making it financially, they'll certainly help us out because they believe as an organization, I think they believe in our mission. Fantastic, fantastic. So I, I've um, worked within some of these difficult populations quite a bit myself. And one of the things that I've found is that they seem to be very responsive and very hardworking kids. Do you find that to be true as well? Um, so this population of kids that we're working with uh, is probably one of the neediest populations of kids that I know of in, in education. I think, uh, and of course, I, I love the population. I love the kids. Uh, that we tend to work with, uh, and um, they're, they always have good stories, they're um, great to interact with, and uh, there's a lot of need there. So they like, you know, all, I mean, all you have to do is pay attention to what, they, what they're doing, yeah. give them some positive feedback, and they're all about it. You know, they just love that. But the problem is that they don't get much of that right. uh, in the systems that they're working in. Um, so it really is a population of students that have very poor outcomes overall, and that's the other reason for the need. So we wanted to do this, as I talked about earlier, we wanted to do this because this was a chance to do prevention to um, early intervention, prevention and early intervention, um, you know, getting in touch with kids early on before they end up in residential treatment, for example. Uh, but the reality is for this population of kids, their educational outcomes are very, very poor. Actually, their outcomes, their life outcomes are very, very poor. Right. Uh, they have lower grades than any other students with disabilities. About half of these students will drop out uh, rather than graduate from high school. Uh, and uh, typically they have uh, similar learning problems to students with, uh, with learning disabilities. Uh, and uh, they have high rates of absenteeism from school. And, um, and unfortunately, uh, many of them are arrested after leaving school. Some of them are arrested before leaving school. Uh, but after leaving school, about 25% are arrested within eight years uh, that they're out of school. And for that population of students who drop out of school, about 70% become involved with the criminal justice system in some way or another. So. Uh, this is a population of kids that really have very poor outcomes. So it really is a population that we need to intervene with as early as possible so that we can be successful. Right. Yeah, I, I was reading on, on the Devereaux website that primarily the, um, these kids are referred from the criminal justice system or mental health. Um, right. So, but, but you're getting in much earlier now. Earlier, is that changing? Right. And that's the key. That's the key. That's what you want to do. You want to get in earlier so you can do better work around prevention and early intervention, and you're more likely to have success. It's very hard to be successful as kids age. Uh, then they're going to need much more support in order to be successful. So. Sure, sure. So are, are you talking primarily this is because of socioeconomic conditions or um, are all, we also uh, specific learning disabilities or intellectual mm -hmm. disabilities? Are, are we running across that whole gamut? Well, poverty is a big factor here. Okay. So these kids grow up with a lot of in very risk, risk uh, high risk environments. Okay. 
yeah. um, with poverty being the greatest risk factor there. Um, okay. As you know, and um, but and many of them do have uh, learning disabilities, um, and um, you know, and they um, have engaged in the kinds of behaviors that they engage in for for a long time. They start they typically start pretty early. Okay. Um, so, so why the high rate of, of learning disabilities in, in that population? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, and the interesting thing is when we look at this population of kids and we compare them to kids with learning disabilities, um, at the early age, they kind of start out about the same level. Like they may have reading, reading difficulties. Uh, you know, maybe it's, uh, a third grade student and they're reading at the first grade level or the second grade level or a fourth grade student reading at the second grade level, like a student with learning disabilities, a student with emotional behavior disorders. And what happens over time is the students with learning disabilities are actually able to make more progress if they are given the right support, if they're giving the, given the right instruction uh, that they need to benefit. Uh, they can make more progress. They tend to make more progress than students with emotional behavior disorders who also have uh, learning needs uh, and don't make as much progress as students with learning disabilities. Why is that the case? Uh, because many of them are absent from school. Uh, they're not successful in the classroom. Their behavior impedes learning. Um, so they may be out of the classroom for one reason or another. Um, and, uh, and again, there's a lot of absenteeism there as well. Uh, and then with the poverty factor as well, um, you've got a lot of uh, transients, movement from school to school. There's no stability there. So uh, they tend to not make as much progress. Okay. So um, are, are a lot of these, are a lot of behavioral problems secondary to these uh, specific learning disabilities or intellectual? Just Yeah. Um, I would say there are problem behaviors that are related to uh, being in, uh, having learning problems, um, we, we, we might call them escape-related behaviors. Kids learn those behaviors pretty quickly. Sure. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this, uh, do this assignment. I, want, I don't want to do this work. Um, you know, I don't want to do what you're telling me, so I'm going to engage in disruptive behaviors so I can get out of it. So you'll see a lot of that happening um, with this population of kids. Um, but oftentimes, the, uh, the problem behavior uh, starts very early um, and even before they get into school. Um, and, uh, and there's no intervention uh, at that early age, or oftentimes there's not uh, intervention at that early age when it can be most helpful. And then they, the students get into school and they engage in the same kinds of behaviors, but they're not at home now. So now it's a different situation and they start to encounter a lot of consequences for their behavior. Um, the school environment for them becomes very negative. Um, peers, they, you know, peers reject them because other kids don't want to be involved with kids that tend to engage in more problematic behaviors, um, particularly at an early age. And they get marked very early on that mm -hmm. they're a, uh, you know, a problem child or a, a problem peer. Uh, so they don't have friends with good social skills. So then they begin to gravitate towards other kids with problem behavior. And when they gravitate toward other kids with problem behavior, then we, uh, we see even more problem behavior because they begin to learn from one another. Uh, so that's, you know, that's how it goes with this population. That's sort of a, a package early on.
How do those uh, problem behaviors present at first in their very early days? How do they present? Largely it's non-compliance, yeah. okay? Largely okay. it's non-compliance. And, uh, you know, you, uh, we could even say temperament. You know, I have three children, um, and uh, this is sort of the way I like to explain it. So all, every one of my kids are very different, and they were very different early on, okay? So my first uh, child uh, was pretty easy. Uh, she wasn't easy going, but she was, you know, I mean, I, I think you could probably use the, the skills that I learned uh, watching my parents parent me were very successful with her. That's not a problem. Uh, my second child was very different uh, from very early on. And that's, a, you can detect it as a temperament issue. She had just a very different temperament. Uh, she uh, wasn't always, you know, she was sort of not happy sometimes and uh, more often than not and uh things you know things wouldn't satisfy her as much uh and uh, so with her we had to parent differently we had to think about all right how are we going to uh, help her to be more successful um that's a temperament issue uh and it can turn into an issue around non-compliance you know i want you to do this no i'm not doing it or you know i'm just not going to do it and i don't say anything uh, and the parent keeps coming back and saying, I want you to pick up your toys. I want you to pick up your toys now. And the child may be ignoring the parent. And then suddenly the child starts to throw the toys and get angry because the parent keeps uh, putting the demand on. And what happens is the parent backs down and says, okay, okay, it's all right, you know. Uh, and, uh, and the child continues to play and the parent picks up the toys. That's an important lesson right there. That's an important parenting lesson right there. Now, the problem is with kids with uh, problem behavior, uh, kids who develop early problem behavior, is that you'll see that scenario over and over and over again. It plays out multiple times um, in the child's early life. Uh, and, uh, and the parents learn very quickly that I don't want my child crying, so I'm going to back down here. Um, they're not saying that to themselves, but that's the behavior that the parent goes through. Sure. Uh, and suddenly, uh, you know, at age three uh, years old, after that's happened several times, three years old, four years old, this child is not complying with anything. Anything the child doesn't want to do, that the parent asks them to do, they just start to um, engage in some problem behavior, have a temper tantrum, that kind of thing. Okay. And the parent never um, addresses that uh, or is not successful in addressing that. Um, it's not that the parent is a bad parent. They just don't know that what they need to do uh, in order to make sure that that, uh, in order to uh, reduce that prop, that kind of behavior. Um, then the child goes off to school and assumes that, um, that everything is going to be the same. So you'll see that same kind of behavior in school and that cannot happen, okay? Right. No one's gonna put up with that. So, so then, so that's how it Right, goes. so you have the a Some parent. It, not all of it. Right, sure. So you have a parent with a using a temporary solution, which actually continues to increase the behavior over time. Right, exactly. right. But it sounds like it. This starts off as kind of a, a nature problem, and then ends up being more of a nurture. Yeah, I, yeah. That's probably a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, can you give us a, an overview of ju just quickly of, of how behavioral intervention would work in that case, or 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 what? Or what, what should parents know? 
So we have, you know, there's a lot of people that do uh, good training of parents, and we have a parent training program as well. Uh, we, and uh, there's a set of skills called parent management training. Um, and it's an approach to teach parents um, how to, I'm going to say parent better, but these parents are all invested in being a good parent anyway. We got to, sure. you know, first of all, you know, when you're working with parents, typically for the most part, parents are doing the best they can uh, yeah. under the circumstances. Um, and so what parent management training does is it teaches them how to address noncompliance very wrong. We call noncompliance sort of like a keystone behavior because then that leads to other problems. Um, certainly leads to academic problems. When a kid goes to school, if they're noncompliant, they're not going to learn anything. They're not going to be in the classroom enough to learn anything. Um, so noncompliance is a keystone behavior. If we can address noncompliance early on, uh, and, and that's what we want to do, then we can solve a lot of other issues moving forward. So what we try to focus on in parent management training is teaching parents how to manage noncompliance. Um, and how to manage noncompliance um, is, you know, first of all, uh, let's make sure that we're using, that we're, that we're recognizing what the child does well, that we're acknowledging the child for doing all those good things that he or she should be doing. As very often, us as parents, we tend to ignore, you know. Uh, okay, he's sitting over there doing his homework, fine, let him go. Instead of saying, hey, you know what? You pulled your homework together. You sat down by yourself. You started to do it. That's great. Great job. Um, but we, as parents, tend to take that for granted. So we don't want to take any of those good behaviors for granted, okay? And um, so, uh, so it's making sure that parents are uh, recognizing those kind of behaviors when they occur, acknowledging um, the child for engaging in those behaviors when they occur, and then teaching the parent how to give a command, how to tell the child to do what it is that he or she wants them to do. Um, and that's a straightforward command. Uh, and it's not a question command. It's not like, would you pick up your toys now, please? Uh, it's, uh, John, I want you to pick up your toys. That's it, just straightforward. And when Johnny doesn't pick up his toys, then it is a warning. Uh, Johnny, if you don't pick up your toys, I'm going to, um, you're going to have to go to timeout. Uh, and, uh, and then if Johnny doesn't pick up his toys, then we take him to timeout or the parent, we have the parent take the child to timeout for a very brief period of time and then come back into the situation and issue the command again. Uh, and uh, when the child follows through, praise, uh, let him know, letting them, let him, letting him or her know how successful they're being. Um, and that's the interaction that we want to make sure that parents know how to use. Fantastic. Okay. Yeah, great. That's it's just one example. I mean, you can use timeout or you can use, um, you know, TV time or early bedtime, those kind of things. But the reason why timeout, and I know that a lot of people don't like to use timeout, but the reason why timeout can be so effective is because you can do it immediately and it can be very, very brief and it can be very, very powerful, very effective. So, so um, what kind of a mix of between like punishment strategies and reward strategy? Carrot, carrot or stick? What's always carrot? Okay, as always much carrot. as you can. Okay, we like to get parents to be really high rates of praise, and teachers too. You know, let's let's recognize when kids are doing what we want them to do, because especially younger kids, they really love our attention as adults. Okay. They really thrive on adult attention. So let's use that. That's a great tool to use to really shape behavior and to get kids to do what we want them to do. 
Uh, and every once in a while, you'll have to um, use a timeout procedure. You'll have to address noncompliance. But for the most part, what you want to do is make, uh, is make sure that you are using uh, prevention techniques such as praise and recognizing the kind of good behavior that kids are engaging in. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay. So um, jumping subjects here a little bit. Let's jump into what's going on in the schools. Um, okay. uh, to start off with, I, I know you're working with a variety of schools um, in what do you see in, in terms of preparedness for this new school year? Like what's going on? Are they just trying to fulfill the guidelines or is there creative stuff going on? I mean, where, where are we, or is it all different? Where are we at? Wow. Uh, it's hard to answer right now. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> it's happening day by day. Uh, decisions are being made. We're trying to figure it out ourselves. What are schools going to do? Are they going to open fully? Are they going to have uh, students in classrooms and teachers teaching students face to face? Uh, is that what's going to happen? Uh, some schools are going to a, what we call a hybrid model in which um, some of the students will be in classrooms some of the days uh, and, uh, and then other students will be instructed virtually and then we'll flip that and those students will be in classroom uh, on the other days and the other students will be instructed virtually. So we have sort of like A, B days. Uh, in some schools, we have A-B sessions. So we have a morning session which, in which the student might be in the classroom uh, receiving instruction and in the afternoon being at home um, and being instructed virtually. Uh, so that's another option. So those are called hybrid models. Uh, and then the other option uh, is to uh, go 100% remote instruction uh, for students. Uh, and so we're seeing some districts choose that option as well. Um, that's what happened last year. It was the first time I think anybody ever encountered anything like that. Suddenly, executive order, we're going to shut down schools, schools are closed, everybody is on remote instruction, teachers and students. Um, so that was a very interesting time. Just overnight, right? Yeah. Overnight, and really having to respond to that quickly. Uh, we had to do a lot of work with Endeavor to get set up uh, to respond to that. Because mm -hmm. our Devereux schools were closed as well. Oh, that's right. So you have physical facilities and right. remote teaching right. of, of an, as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what? Just projecting out. What? What positive things could you do? You think may happen with all of this? Okay. Uh, so with all of this, what positive things may happen? So we've learned really, I think, how to do remote instruction. I think uh, schools, school systems, uh, know how to do this. Uh, and uh, you know, we've learned what the needs are, uh, how to reach students. Uh, you know, when they are being instructed remotely. And I'm saying that generally. I don't know that everybody knows how to do that. Uh, but school districts, I think, have responded pretty well. Uh, to this need. Um, so moving forward, you know, I don't know that education will be business as it has been, business as usual, so to speak, as it has been over these past, since 1912, when compulsory school laws came into effect. I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. Uh -huh. uh, that's not 1912, but the early 1900s. Um, and, uh, and so education, I think, will change. Uh, there are some kids that can be very successfully taught remotely, and there are other kids who 
uh, will struggle in remote instruction. And those are the kids that I'm concerned about. And those are the kids that the Center for Effective Schools serves. Uh, and those are kids in urban education. Um, it's very hard uh, in urban schools to make uh, remote instruction successful. Um, some kids will do well. A lot of kids won't do well. Kids won't show up for instruction. Um, that's not good. Uh, teachers will work very hard to make it happen, but you know, kids won't show. Right. But you have uh, that going on regardless of whether it's virtual or not, but is it just more opportunity to not show? More, more opportunity to not show. you got to have really, uh, you know, you've got to have your family behind you. You've got to have your family pushing that. Uh, you got to have somebody at home uh, who is making sure that you're getting online when you need to get online for class. And, you know, that's not always the case in those uh, more impoverished environments. Uh, we don't always have that. Uh, then the other thing is in uh, more uh, of the um, affluent environments, more uh, and in suburban and suburban uh, locations, uh, we have parents who may be working, and you have kid a child on remote instruction uh, who may need help, and the parent may not know uh, how to operate Google Classroom. Google Classroom, unfortunately, is not that easy. Uh, to use. And uh, so the parent is having to ramp up their skills in helping their child uh, to be educated remotely. Um, so that's the second variable in here. And then the third variable is, do teachers know, uh, know how to instruct remotely? Okay, so we just assume that teachers know how to instruct, they know how to develop the lesson plan, um, and they can do that very effectively. Good teachers do that very effectively, and they do it day after day in school. Um, but, uh, you know, a, re a remote environment is very different. And what do they need to do differently to engage kids in a remote uh, instructional uh, environment? Right, right. Yeah, I, I know it's different. I've been teaching, um, you'll laugh when I say this, but I've been teaching Kung Fu for online for six or seven years now. So long before it was a thing. And, uh, it, it, it works, but it, it is different. Yeah, so that's a skill that I would think, now how do you do that remotely? Uh, so that's something that we wouldn't think about being taught remotely. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely, when I tell people that I do that, they just give me a blank stare at first and <laughs> say, I didn't think that was possible. But, yeah. but it, it, it's entirely possible. And some of my, um, you know, I have, students in different places in the world that I've never met personally, but um, they are some of my best students. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, you have there, what I, I think with, which is, was kind of one of my questions about seeing the possibility of there are some things that are going to be more efficient. And of course there's, there's some hurdles, um, but you know, the greatest, the, the biggest efficiency that we saw was, was just storage cap capability. And what, it, you know, the, the idea of teaching a martial art on video, everyone said for 20, 30 years, it can't be done. Well, that's because when it started, it was on VHS. You know, you've got a, a one hour medium there and you just can't do right. much in that time to where I've got my, just my beginning class alone, the very rudimentary getting started is 200 hours of video, which that's not a problem online. We have, we have right. in, it essentially infinite storage. Mm -hmm.
Do you have a smart child who is struggling in school? Are you feeling overwhelmed? Do you feel like the struggle is holding your child back from their true potential? Maybe the anxiety and worry over your child's future just beats you down every day. You don't have to live that way. Learn how to stop a learning disability from becoming a life disability. A child with a learning disability is stressful for the child and the parent. The disability may be eroding their confidence and shattering their self-esteem. Other people may perceive your child as unintelligent and antisocial. If not addressed and fixed early, the child may develop permanent challenges later in life when looking for a good job or meeting a potential spouse. Our current school system does not know how to properly help our children, but at Learning Success, we do. We've created a system you can easily do at home with your child, and with just 15 minutes per day after school with your child, you can save them from a life of struggle and heartbreak. Learn how to unleash your child's potential and embrace their true intelligence. As a special gift for being a loyal podcast listener, we're going to give you a free trial of the Learning Success System. Try it out absolutely free for 15 days. If it is not the perfect fit to help your child succeed in school and in life, just cancel before the trial ends and pay nothing. You even get to keep the free bonuses. Go to www.learningsuccesssystem.com forward slash podcast to get your free trial now. You'll be so happy you did once you see the great grades your child is capable of getting. Imagine being so proud of your child when they bring home a great report card and hand it over with a beaming smile. Get your free trial now at www.learningsuccesssystem.com forward slash podcast. You've got nothing to lose except the stress and anxiety that is holding you and your child down. I'll see you there. Um, so let's jump into um, what you're, so you've, you've created uh, the CES training modules and this yeah. is for, what is it for? I'll, I'll let you explain that. So, I mean, this, this is what we do. We do a training. We train teachers. We train teachers how to teach and how to manage behavior and, you know, how to be uh, successful um, in uh, classrooms and, uh, and most of our work is done in urban schools, and a lot of our work is done in alternative education programs, uh, and a lot of our work is done in special education classrooms and public schools, uh, urban and sometimes even suburban. We do a lot of work in urban schools, I'll tell you that. Um, and, um, and then, so when this governor's order came down to close schools uh, and uh, in Devereaux, uh, we thought, all right, well, we have to go to remote instruction. We need to help out our Devereaux educators um, because this is what we do at the Center for Effective Schools. We thought, well, one of the ways that we can help our Devereaux educators is by developing some training programs where, to teach them how to teach remotely. Um, and um, because we know there are things that teachers can do uh, to be more effective in the classroom face to face. But what about translating those same things into a remote instructional environment? So can we do that? Um, and so we created six, um, six modules, six uh, 
PowerPoint presentations, voiceover PowerPoint presentations, and we purposely kept them very short because we know that people don't have a lot of time. Uh, we were shifting over to Google Classroom uh, as all of our teachers are going to now instruct remotely. We trained all of our teachers how to use Zoom. Uh, we trained all of our teachers how to use Google Classroom. And then we created these six training modules uh, to um, show them how to teach in the way that uh, they could get the most benefit from it uh, and while, while in a remote situation. And before we even get started down this path, I, you know, I direct the Devereux Center for Picture Schools, but I have a talented group of people who work with me. So these were uh, done by um, two of my folks, two of my training and consulting specialists, uh, Dr. Brittany Zakeski and Dr. Lindsay Erdy. Uh, they were really the ones who developed these six training modules. Um, and uh, so we, uh, we developed them really for Devereux uh, and Devereux teachers uh, to meet a need there. Uh, and then we thought, wait a minute, why are we just uh, using this inside Deborah? Why don't we share this uh, with uh, public schools and the schools that we work with? And let's just share it freely because this is such a uh, an unprecedented time, if you will. I, I know that term is overused a little bit, but it really is. I mean, and it people is. needed support. Uh, and so we decided to offer these uh, freely to uh, all of our contacts. Uh, and we reached out in a lot of ways to uh, all of our contract, all of our contacts across the country and said, hey, we have these modules. Here's how you get access to them. Uh, you know, please enjoy them. Okay, fantastic. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of interested in what these modules are and just a little bit of mm -hmm. overview. So can we just go through and each each module and what what they're learning and maybe some sure. highlights? Sure. Uh, I can do that. Uh, so, you know, the first, there are six modules. So the first one really is just an introduction to the series. You know, here's what you're going to learn in this series. And this is what this series is about. Um, and then the second module is about remote instructional activities. So one of the things we talk about is the importance of matching learning activities to the student's instructional level. You know, that's important. Uh, and the different types of remote instruction, such as uh, just because remote instruction does not have to be using Zoom all the time. Remote instruction can include instructional guides, written instructional guides. How do you make those work for kids? Um, recorded instruction in some cases, and that sounds like what you're doing with the Kung Fu stuff. In some cases, we're recording uh, our instruction uh, and we're going to deliver it asynchronously. Uh, and then there's live instruction. So we have those different types of remote instruction. So module two goes through those different types. Um, and then um, how to do instruction across those different types and how to do, you know, we, we explain some elements of explicit instruction and some considerations for, um, for delivering um, instruction, just some things that you need to think about in delivering instruction remotely, like time and pacing and, um, you know, how much time do you want the child to be engaged in this instruction, how to do practice activities, that kind of stuff. Uh, so that's module two. Uh, module three is teaching expectations. So we still want to make sure that we teach behavior because that's really what we're about. We teach behavior to students. We teach them how to be successful. Uh, so we want to, we want to teach expected behavior for a remote learning context. How do we want students to behave? Uh, what are the rules they need to follow during remote instruction? 
Um, how do they ask questions? How do they access the materials, et cetera? So we have the, thir the, the third module is teaching expectations. The fourth module is using a lesson agenda and conducting transitions. So think about that during, uh, during remote instruction. So using a lesson agenda is something that we teach our teachers. That's really how to, um, how to increase your structure and routine for, uh, for any learning environment. But this is how to do it in a remote learning environment, making sure that you have a lesson agenda, you know what you're covering during the lesson, that you're sharing that information with the students um, so they can see what's coming up, so they can anticipate what's coming up. Uh, it's sort of the, the lesson agenda is sort of the roadmap for the instructional period. And then how to transition students. So in a regular public school setting or any school setting, transition time is actually one of the most uh, challenging times uh, for teachers because uh, suddenly we're, ha we're having a change. Kids are changing from one instructional activity to the next, or they may be moving from one location to the next location. You might get a lot of problem behavior during that time. Sometimes uh, transition times are protracted, they're extended over too much time. It takes too long to make it happen uh, because a lot of that is around managing behavior. So uh, we teach how to transition uh, how to efficiently move from one subject to the next in a remote learning environment. So um, that is, uh, that's the using a lesson agenda and conducting transitions uh, uh, module. Uh, the next module is the opportunities to respond module. This is a really important variable in instruction. Uh, one of the things that we know uh, is that for students to be most successful, for students to learn, they have to have lots of opportunities to respond, actively respond to instruction. So I want to make sure that, you know, rather than, you know, um, I'm going to quote Anita Archer here, who wrote the book on explicit instruction. And she says, uh, her quote is, learning is not a spectator sport. It is not a spectator sport. Um, it's about actively engaging kids so that they are learning. They're not going to learn if they're not actively engaged. They need to be responding uh, to your instruction in some way. It could be a written response, could be a vocal response. Um, and how can we do that? It's one of the best tools that we have really to keep students engaged. Uh, and we can, you know, just do individual quick responses, or we have, can have choral responding, or we can use little whiteboards to have students write their responses on and hold them up. Uh, so there's lots of ways to increase OTRs or opportunities to respond. Um, so that is the fifth module. And then the sixth module, the last one is about providing academic and behavioral feedback uh, to students uh, and includes a little part on group contingencies. So, uh, so that's really for the teacher, like how to provide immediate and delayed academic and behavioral feedback within a remote learning environment. So, so we're talking about using praise um, and when we have to, using effective corrective strategies, using reward systems if we need to uh, remotely. We don't often think about that. That's harder to do remotely, uh, but we have to think about that as well. Uh, so, so those are the six modules. Okay, great. Do you have any questions yeah. about those? Yeah, well, a couple of comments. Your your OTR. That's interesting. We we use, of course, we use Zoom. We use pre-recorded stuff, but we will also use like a, an asynchronous threaded responses. And so, mm -hmm. you know, somebody will post a video or ask us. We usually what we'll do is ask a student to post a video. And I don't know if this 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 has got to translate. We'll you know, yeah, um, post We're a doing video it. of you doing this technique. Yeah we'll give responses that could be a text response, could be a video response. And this is in a threaded forum type thing. And then they have to come back and with their revised version. And, and, and so you get this thread. Um, and 
the majority of students do not participate, but we do know that they are watching and listening. So um, is that something you find is that, I mean, are you trying, obviously you're gonna try to get all of the students participation in something like that, but are, do you still get the benefit if, if somebody's being the wallflower, uh, you know? Uh, yeah, we actually try to, if somebody's being the wallflower, that's okay. We, we still really try to get them engaged. We know that there's um, greater success if they are exhibiting those, uh, those responses, if, they're in, if they are able to perform those responses. So whatever way that we can get that done, we're going to get that done. You have to understand that we're teaching academic content, so it's a little different than I think what you're teaching, although I don't know all of what you're teaching. Uh -huh. uh, but it sounds like you're doing it anyway. Um, and, but we're, we just do it, we, you know, in schools, when you're teaching academic content, you want to do it pretty frequently. So we're actually looking for high rates of opportunities to respond. Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, so saying something like, um, so this is the sound of the long A, it goes, A, how does the sound of the long A go? And then hold your hand up and everybody says A, That's um, a group, and then yeah. you start pointing at one student and the next student and the next student. So you're, you're, what you're doing is you're increasing the pace of instruction so that keeps them engaged because you got to pay attention. You never know when they're going to be called on. Plus, um, they are uh, exhibiting the response that we want. Right, right. And I, I imagine engagement is just like the most important factor in, in yeah. all of this. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, it is. Right. Yeah. We want to keep uh, them engaged. Yeah, I've heard a lot of stories this repeated story of a student putting up you know a picture of them looking like they're paying attention yeah. as, as a screenshot and, and i've seen that mentioned over and over and over yeah um, I, I, i'm sure teachers pretty are pretty smart some kids are pretty good yeah <laughs> yeah you know then maybe they go so far as a as an animated gif so that would change as every once in a while or something but uh, what's the situation with engagement like percentage wise or you know what, what you are know, you getting we have students we have students who you know there are students out there i shouldn't i don't want to say that we have students because the center for Pickle schools we're not teaching these classrooms we're just doing teacher training sure. and but what we know about remote instruction is it really varies um, so you have students uh, with very invested parents, parents who are committed. Uh, those students are going to be online. They're going to be there when the teacher's there. Um, and, uh, you know, and then it's up to the teacher's skill to see um, how well he or she can engage the students uh, and get them to complete their work. Um, and for some of those parents, uh, you know, some of the students will need help, like with Google Classroom, turning their assignments in. Uh, that kind of stuff, especially the younger kids. Um, and so parents are having to help with that and they're there and they're dedicated to doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, we have, uh, you know, I, I would say, I'm gonna generalize here a little bit, I don't know across the board, um, but I know that we do some work in urban schools and we do a lot of work in urban schools, but, and I know particularly in urban schools, uh, we don't get the attendance that we need to get. Uh, sure. Remote instruction has, I would say, has not been successful um, in that, you know, with that population of kids. Um, and I think um, for kids, the, the kids that we, you know, that, that really uh, are the foundation of our mission, you know, what we're, the, the kids that we're trying to address, 
I don't think uh, they're very successful in remote instruction either. Uh, because so what, what, what's going to be the, what do you think is going to be the solution to that? Uh, we got to get back into the classroom. Okay. Uh, kids are going to be most successful uh, when they're in the classroom. And this is generally, generally speaking, this is what I think. Uh, for younger kids, remote instruction is, is challenging because sure. um, teachers do a great job when they're face-to-face -face with kids, when they're uh, engaging in explicit instruction, fast-paced, high rates of praise, lots of opportunities to respond, that kind of stuff going on. That's a great learning environment for kids. Uh, it's, our modules teach that uh, uh, to do it remotely. But for younger kids, just, you know, not having somebody in front of them, not having somebody right there, uh, you know, uh, is, yeah. I think, not as effective. Older students, you know, who are successful in school, I think they can take full advantage of remote instruction and probably do in many cases, you know. I think that's more. one of the things that we've learned in this whole process, is probably learned, is that we can um, do a lot uh in terms of having kids uh, learn right from home especially our secondary age students um and i think yeah. uh, schools and teachers will learn a lot about implementing remote instruction for that population of kids yeah we know um you know when we were teaching in a in a kung fu school we had a huge huge number of adhd children in the in a class and then in the younger and our rule was five seconds if you if you had a more than a five second where something wasn't going on or where they weren't interacting, you were done. You lost. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so um, sure. they the, they then ruled the classroom. <laughs> it was yeah. hard to get it yeah. back. You know. <laughs> um, what do what should parents look for to know that their kids are engaged? I, I know there's just a lot of situations where the parent is working from home. You know, and the kids in other, at a, you know, in another part of the house or whatever, doing their schoolwork. And so, do you have the situation where you know the the classic kid comes home and parent says, "What do you have for homework?" And none was assigned. I mean, is that <laughs> are there parallels to that that we what what should parents? Yeah. I think what are kids they? are pretty savvy online, uh, and uh, yeah, know, more older, so than their so. parents, so which is a problem yeah. here. You, yeah, it is a real problem. You got to make sure that they are paying attention to what's going on, that they're not multitasking on that computer screen. I right. can be, I can be having a conversation with you right now and texting somebody else, and you might not even know that. Right. Uh, and uh, so, you know, well, with you, I be, probably would, but with a ten-year-old, I wouldn't because they're more skilled at it. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so parents have to be observant. They have to be monitoring that. It's really about monitoring. Uh, okay. And that's hard because we're all working, uh, and you know, I'm working from home right now too. I don't have uh, young children here, uh, and uh, I think, but but some of my some of my staff do. Uh, and I, you know, I just, I, it's very, I don't know how they do it. I think it's very hard for them to work, uh, and to be taking care of their child, uh, while they're engaged in work. I don't think that I could do that, uh, so more power to them, but same deal. I mean, they're working and they have to be monitoring what their child is doing in order to make sure that their child is fully engaged. Right, right. The suggestion that I, that I've seen from others with that is, is ideally if there's a, a, a both two parents at home that you really have to switch off and on and yeah. be a hundred percent on 
on whatever you're doing and multitasking just doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work for me. I'm really bad at it. Me, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> I. I'm terrible at it. I can, you know, I work from home and throw something on the stove for lunch and it'll, it'll completely burn because I'm into what I'm doing <laughs> and but I forgot about it. I just, right. yeah, it's, it's not, not good at all. So these modules, um, how do people access them? They can go to the Center for Effective Schools website, www.centerforeffectiveschools.com or .org. Uh, and uh, there's a big banner there uh, that talks about the modules and shows how to access it. Okay, easy uh, enough. Have to we'll actually, we have a survey that people have to complete, uh, just giving us some, some information, then we give you a link to the modules. Okay, great. Uh, and then you can access all the modules. So we've had we'll some link. very good feedback from the modules, so it's really Good, appreciative, good. appreciative of people that have responded. Oh, I think it's such a great idea that you guys have done this. I mean, that's yeah. uh, it's it's one of the big questions on how do we do this, right? Yeah. So um, it's fantastic. Um, then what other? Tell us what else? Uh, what other other resources for the De Devereaux Center? So the modules were such a success uh, that we are actually uh, developing some additional modules. Uh, again, my team of Dr. Zakeski and Dr. Erdy, along with Jessica Martin, uh, who also works for the Center for Effective Schools, uh, they're developing ways to use motivation systems to motivate kids to do uh, well uh, in schools. So we call them acknowledgement systems, and they're developing uh, the system for remote instruction uh, and for the use with Google Classroom. Uh, acknowledgement systems using Padlet. I don't know if you know that. You know, no, can you tell what that is? Another app. I'm, I'm probably the worst person to tell you about Padlet because I don't use it, but I've used it occasionally. Um, it's just a way to kind of post things on a, um, on a computer screen, uh, and uh, you can write on it anything that you want. Um, and, but my team has found a way to use the Padlet app uh, to construct a motivation system. Uh, so when I'm talking about motivation system, like, you know, giving kids rewards for engaging in the kind of behaviors that we want to see or for uh, performing well academically. So that's what they're engaged in right now is developing uh, additional modules to uh, develop uh, uh, acknowledgement systems that can be used remotely. Because a lot of the, again, a lot of the work that we do with kids with emotional behavior disorders involves uh, using motivation systems and acknowledgement systems. So are these, is this, is this gamification? Um, yeah, in some ways it is. Yeah. Okay. So it'll be like that. Okay. Those, those modules aren't done yet. So they're, uh, in the uh, development stage right now. So, uh, they'll be coming out. Uh, other products are, we have, uh, we have a teacher training program called building essential skills for teachers of students with emotional behavior disorders or, uh, the short form of that is called Best EBD, and it really is. Uh, it used to be called the Strengthening Emotional Support Services uh, Program. Uh, it is one of the only evidence-based training programs uh, for teachers of students with EBD, emotional behavior disorders. Uh, and uh, it was tested out many years ago. Uh, it was one of the first uh, projects that we had at the Center for Effective Schools. Um, so we have that available. Uh, we have the Devereaux Classroom Observation Tool, which uh, is a tool that uh, consultants can use to observe teachers and provide feedback to teachers about, you know, what things that they can change uh, to improve classroom instruction and classroom behavior management. 
Uh, we have a parent training program based on parent management training, which I talked about earlier. Uh, that's, uh, there are six uh, modules there, one on household rules, rules and routines, teaching cooperation through effective requests and praise, setting up reward system, again, um, using your attention effectively, how to respond to challenging behavior, and, uh, and another module just on very specific strategies, like addressing bedtime, addressing homework, that kind of stuff. We also have a uh, training program for, uh, for folks who work in uh, lunchrooms. Lunchrooms can be very chaotic, uh, especially as you get into urban schools. Uh, so it's called the Lunchroom Behavior Game. That's also an evidence-based uh, program. So we have some research behind that to support its effectiveness. Uh, most recently, we developed a training program called ComCat. This is some of the direct work uh, that we can do with students, or we can sell this to school districts, uh, and they can do the direct work with students. It really teaches relaxation. It's a relaxation skills training program uh, for students in grades kindergarten through fifth. Can you, um, what, what sort of thing are you, are you using in that? So in ComCat, we use, so we, we teach um, students how to do belly breathing, how to okay. you know, right. take in air and, sure. yeah. and then let it out, how to picture your peaceful place, how to use, uh, how to relax, systematically relax your muscles. Uh, and then in the end, really how to make a plan to make sure that you, uh, if you need to relax, if you need to calm down, you have a plan to do so. Uh, those sessions, uh, there are uh, five sessions there and they're about 30 minute sessions each. Um, and that's something that we have been exploring, uh, doing that, uh, offering that service to schools, especially during this time. Fantastic. That's, that's, you've got a lot going on. That's, that's yeah. pretty, pretty amazing. Got a great team of people who do it, actually. It sounds like you do. That's, that's fantastic. So, um, very good. Very good. Um, that, I mean, we've covered a lot. Is there anything else that uh, you want to add here before we wrap it up? No, I just will say that I have uh, really, I want to give credit to the team of people that work with me. Uh, they have been phenomenal. I have a lot of doctoral level school psychologists like myself. Many of them are. Uh, I have uh, consulting and research psychologists, and they're all doctoral level. I have training and consulting specialists. They are all, many of them are at doctoral level or master's level. Uh, they're trained as school psychologists or counselors or special educators. Uh, they're very dedicated to this work, uh, and they work long hours because they want to. Uh, yeah. And it's a great team to work with, and I just I love working with them. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming on. This has been very yeah. informative, and I think this is going to help a lot of teachers and parents. Yeah. And uh, I wish you a lot of thank luck you. in your work. You're doing great work. Thank you for the invite. I really enjoyed talking with you. And if uh, folks have any questions, they can just really go to our website. Again, it's the centerforeffectiveschools.org. Uh, and uh, if they have Great. any questions, they can ask through there. We'll, Thank you we'll so make much. sure that they uh, they can get there with uh, all the links from, from this okay. podcast. All right. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Learning Success Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. We also hope you have learned something useful, something that you can take back and improve your life with today. If you would like to say thank you, the best way for you to do that is to share this podcast with a friend. Help us help others along this journey. And if you haven't already, please rate and comment on the podcast. 
Every rating helps us and helps this podcast get out to more people. We appreciate it and we appreciate you. Thank you again and make today a great day. No one should have to live with a learning difficulty.